Welcome to Policy Chats, the official podcast of the School of Public Policy at the University of California, Riverside. I'm your host, Kevin Karami. Join me and my classmates as we learn about potential policy solutions for today's biggest societal challenges. Joining us today is California State Controller Betty Yi. My fellow classmate Joanna Arias and I chatted with her about her career in public service. California State Controller Betty Yi was first elected into office in 2014 and then re-elected in 2018. She has a long career in public service and is experienced through her endeavors in state and local government, her positions on multiple boards and commissions, and the multiple projects and initiatives she has started and is currently involved in. Controller Yi, it is an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you. I'm sure our audience wants to hear your answers to all of our questions, so I'm going to jump straight into it um, with a very broad first question. How did you get involved in public service and politics? It is, um, I think, a story that is not unique to me, but I um, certainly had some unique circumstances that faced uh, uh, my family and myself. Uh, my first foray into public service really was to be an advocate. Uh, I was an advocate for my immigrant Chinese parents who owned a laundry and dry cleaning business in San Francisco and uh, really had to be their advocate when interfacing with government agencies. And uh, I actually took care of the books for the family business. And, um, you know, my, uh, and I realized that, um, you know, being an advocate meant, you know, just really being their voice. They were not uh, fluent in English. And when I was 13 years old, I uh, was their voice, uh, in addition to um, the other three Chinese American families in the neighborhood in San Francisco. And uh, to be um, a voice to oppose the school busing program that the San Francisco Unified School District would be pursuing, uh, that would affect my uh, little sister. And I remember uh, going and speaking on behalf of these four Chinese American families who wanted to designate me to speak at a local town hall meeting at the local elementary school. Uh, just uh, two blocks away from my family business. And the statement I made at the age of 13, uh, the parents had uh, drafted pretty much uh, went um, to, to say that they were not opposed to the goals of the busing program, but really wanted to have the school district realize that it would pose a hardship for parents uh, who were in small business, who uh, could not close up their business should an emergency arise uh, with any of their children. None of the families had a car or drove. And it would take them well over two hours on public transportation to bring their child home should emergency arise. Uh, I made that statement. Um, and uh, I also remember uh, they particularly wanted me to state that they wanted the uh, funding for the school busing program to be used to improve the quality of the schools throughout the city. Uh, I made that statement. I went back to my seat in the school auditorium and the school busing program then uh, took uh, basically um, took place over the better part of the next 30 plus years. Uh, and everything was fine. Nothing happened to my little sister. But that impression, uh, that one experience left an impression in me uh, really for the rest of my life that I was a voice for someone. And when I think about public service and politics, it, it is exactly that. Um, you know, how do we serve the greater public good? How do we be sure that any challenges that we face as a community, as a society, are informed by the voices of those who are closest to the problems? And that uh, in the world of politics, which I still view as something very positive and not what you read about in the newspaper and all the contentions, contentiousness and the um, some of the negative aspects of politics, 
was really about people. It's about being sure that people have a voice, that people have uh, input into the decisions that are going to be affecting their lives. So then I decided I would um, take my experience uh, and background in finance, um, home, uh, running the family business finances. Uh, that became really, um, I was always good at numbers and through my throughout my education and certainly in my uh, public service life, I've always dealt with uh, fiscal and financial issues. It's a space that I'm comfortable in, mainly because money drives everything. We know that in our professional lives and our personal lives and certainly in public policy, that is the case. So I um, you know, just became uh, very, very interested in how to marry uh, my love for advocacy uh, and being sure that people's voices were uh, included in decision-making uh, along with the uh, uh, decisions around the allocation of resources. I love that. And thanks for sharing how you got involved into public service. And I'm sure that our audience is you know, very thankful to hear that story. Um, my next question for you, um, how do you run for public office, being that you've been the state controller uh, for several years here? Um, how did you go about that? Sure. Uh, so prior to um, being elected controller, I actually served on the California Board of Equalization, which is the nation's only elected tax commission. Uh, I represented a district uh, along the um, California coast from the Oregon border down to Santa Barbara. Uh, there were four seats that are elected by district and then the fifth member is the state controller. So I still serve on that board today. Uh, it is, um, you know, running for office was not something I dreamed about doing. Uh, definitely was not a teenage dream of mine. <laughs> And it uh, was a way to continue doing the work that I love, uh, which is in the whole fiscal financial arena, and also um, kept me in the tax policy arena, which I uh, just find fascinating. Uh, you know, how to run for office is something that I think is, um, you will speak to political consultants and they will have very different um, you know, approaches for how to um, run and how to win. Uh, for me, it was really about doing the work and really having my background, you know, really hopefully be considered uh, you know, meritorious and, and hopefully deserving of being elected to public office. Uh, I, when I ran, um, my experience really uh, was um, at that point, you know, what, 25 plus years of uh, experience where um, I had worked for other elected officials. And so I really kind of had a good sense of the inside, uh, you know, behind the scenes, uh, you know, inner workings of government and uh, just felt that I was really qualified to run. So I think for, and why I say it's personal is that we each have to know when we're ready to run. And uh, I can tell you when I was younger, I don't think I ever would have thought that I was ready, but having, you know, served so many elected officials, worked on so many policy issues, I did feel very equipped to run. Um, and then a lot of it really has to do with, you know, how do you run a campaign? Uh, and I think for anyone who's interested in running for office, the first thing to do is to work on a campaign. Uh, really get an inside look at you know what's demanded of a campaign, what's demanded of excuse me, what's demanded of a candidate, uh, the time commitment, and just being you know really eyes wide open about you know what it's going to take to to run for office, and then uh, not only that, but really understanding the job that you're running for, <laughs> the position that you're running for. I do see a lot of people who have ambitions to run for office, but uh, once they're elected, are a little lost about how to you know pursue <laughs> serving in office, and I would say. Um, that's probably not a good thing that exudes confidence uh, with the voters. Um, so um, really um, knowing that uh, you, knowing why you wanna run, 
um, uh, knowing the position that you're running for well, and uh, also knowing what you intentionally want to do while you're serving. And you know, some of that will unfold while you're in office. But um, I think what motivates all of us to run is that we always want to um, uh, we want to we want to serve. We want to um, you know just always uh, see if we can provide for the common good. And I think that's an intention that is shared regardless of um, you know uh, your party affiliation. Uh, but things do become partisan once you're in office. And so. Um, so how and, the, and what I'm happy to say today is that for anyone who's interested in running, uh, unlike when I uh, first was interested in running or even when I was helping on other people's campaigns, there are many, many training programs that prepare candidates to run for office at all levels of government. So uh, I'm happy to see those. I do think that they are good programs that really uh, prepare uh, any candidate for what's to come. Um, and, and I think um, the last thing I do want to say about this is that um, you know, being a candidate, uh, you have a lot of demands on you. Uh, you will have people try to mold you into a person that you probably aren't. You're going to have people who are going to want to uh, know what your positions are on, on a whole myriad of issues. And I would say that the biggest uh, takeaway for me, uh, having run for statewide office, run for uh, a, a, a state level office like the tax board, is you just stay true to yourself. Um, you know, uh, I think it's just one of the things that I've learned a lot about myself in this process. And uh, I think that's just one of the things that often uh, times gets, uh, uh, gets lost uh, as we pursue uh, these uh, public offices. Should the federal government phase out the use of private prisons? Two teams of UC Riverside students face off about this issue at a policy debate hosted by the UCR School of Public Policy on November 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific. Special guest judge is former County of San Bernardino District Attorney Michael Ramos. Learn more by going to spp.ucr.edu. You can also find the RSVP link below in our show notes. Thank you, Controller Yi. And just a follow-up question um, to what you mentioned. What do you believe is the most challenging part of running for public office and what has been the most fulfilling part of it for you? Sure, absolutely. You know, the most challenging part is really just, uh, you know, and I did not come up through the ranks of local government. So uh, the first office I ran for was for the tax board. I represented 9 million Californians. So how to get my message out to 9 million Californians. Um, I love people. Uh, I wish I could have knocked on the doors of every 9 million of those Californians and had a conversation, but uh, that would not be the most efficient way to run a campaign. Um, so I think the uh, hardest part is just um, you know, knowing that uh, you have a limited amount of time to really get your message out to uh, hopefully be able to persuade voters that you're the best candidate. Uh, the other frustrating part, I have to say, is being a woman. Um, you know, we are not, I think, uh, still taken seriously. Uh, I know that uh, I had an opponent who specifically ran against me because uh, he thought that uh, he could beat a woman. And uh, so I think that uh, being a woman is still a disadvantage. Uh, I actually consider it an asset but in the political world. I think it's still considered a disadvantage for women who want to run. And I know many women who do, um, who have uh, you know, young children, they have to make those decisions about whether that's the right time for them, um, how to provide for childcare when you're on the campaign trail. I mean, just things like that that are real practical kinds of considerations that you know, women have to really uh, be more mindful of than, than men running. And then uh, obviously raising money, uh, you know, the fundraising um, it is uh, a, a proven fact that women who run uh, tend to have more difficulty raising money, as I said, because we're not taken seriously. I know what my own experience when I've uh, uh, 
done call time for money, when I've uh, made uh, had in-person meetings to uh, with prospective donors, it's taken you know three, four, or five times going back to those same people before uh, they were convinced that uh, this was something that they wanted to invest in. So, um, so I think those are some of the the difficulties in running. Uh, the the highlight about running, and I do have to say this, is uh, what else would thrust you into a position of meeting people that you otherwise may not meet? And I have met some amazing people. Uh, we live in a great state. Um, it is a beautifully diverse state. It is of um, diverse perspectives. Uh, <clears throat> our people and backgrounds are, are diverse. Um, and to be able to go to every region of the state, and I did uh, go to every 58 county, uh, all of the 58 counties in the state when I ran for controller uh, in 2014. And um, I cannot say, and I wish there were a way that I could have chronicled that experience, but just the, uh, the, the, the um, share commonalities that we have across the different regions of California, all the way to the uh, differences among us that uh, I think really need to be showcased more. Mm -hmm. That, you know, for you, you know, you're at UC Riverside to know that the <clears throat> challenges in the Inland Empire share some commonality with challenges that maybe somebody in the, uh, where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area or in uh, the Central Valley may experience. But yet we know that there are really strong attributes in each of our regions to where uh, I'm convinced today that this is the case and government has to do a better job of making the connection that any challenge being faced anywhere in California can be solved in California. And we just have to you know, match up the talent, match up the ambition, you know, match up just uh, you know, where we've got uh, you know, strengths and attributes and other parts of the state that can actually be deployed to help with uh, challenges being met in, in uh, some of our uh, more remote areas. Sorry, I just wanted to add, I really thought that um, what you mentioned about running as a female was very noteworthy, um, that it adds a lot of challenges to running a campaign. Um, thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'd like to echo what Joanna said. Um, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I think something that um, moving forward, some people may um, start forgetting or may not consider as a factor when it comes to running for office and it can affect other parts of, and it does affect other parts of our lives. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah. Um, so we've spoken a lot about running for office and what you were interested in, but I'd also like to talk about the position you're currently in and what you do. So. So I understand you serve as the chair of the Franchise Tax Board, um, which is directly involved in collecting California's taxes. So can you briefly explain how this agency functions and what elements you're specifically responsible for? Sure. No, absolutely. And maybe, Kevin, if I could, um, let me maybe back up a little bit, just talk about my, um, just, just what a controller does. It does vary from state to state. In some states, controllers are not elected, they're appointed, um, but by and large, they are elected. Here in California, uh, I do serve as the uh, independent fiscal watchdog over our state's finances. So uh, from that perspective, um, any payment, so, so as controller, I pay the bills for California, so I'm responsible for all the disbursements uh, for uh, to, to pay our bills. Uh, I do handle uh, payroll for over 280,000 state employees and employees of the California State University system. Uh, we are responsible for all of the financial reporting uh, for California. So I do, uh, the, our office issues the uh, annual comprehensive financial report for the state of California, uh, just to talk about the state's fiscal condition and, and certainly uh, looking at um, 
uh, how we uh, have a, I'm the independent auditor uh, for the state of California. Uh, every payment that leaves the state is audited before uh, it does uh, get paid. So, um, so, so we are pretty much a, a watchdog. And if I could make just a little bit of a plug, um, it's in most states, it's either the controller or the treasurer that has uh, the uh, responsibility of administering the unclaimed property program. Uh, this is a program where companies uh, have to turn over properties that uh, they've been holding on to uh, and for which they've not been able to find and locate the rightful owners. So it could be uh, you know, an abandoned savings account. Maybe you've moved and you forgot you had a savings account. Could be a uncashed refund check, could be a utility deposit. But uh, I'm just gonna ask um, uh, those who are uh, listening to this podcast, uh, if you believe that you have property that you may have lost, or maybe you don't, just do a, a search under claimit.ca.gov. That's C-L-A-I-M-I-T.ca.gov. This is the public database that my office maintains of all the properties that are turned over to, to my office from various companies, banks, insurance companies, and the like. And uh, search under your name, all the different names that you've had during your lifetime. Search for your friends, search for your family members, and uh, see if we're holding any property for you. We would like to return it. Uh, you know, I do um, have uh, policy responsibilities as well. Uh, so as you mentioned, Kevin, I do serve on a number of different boards and commissions, uh, the Franchise Tax Board being one of them. Uh, so as chair of the Franchise Tax Board, obviously this is the tax board that um, um, uh, administers the uh, income tax, uh, both personal and corporate income tax. And, and uh, much of my responsibilities as chair of the board, it's a three-member board that also includes the governor's director of finance, as well as um, the chair of the state board of equalization. Uh, we are essentially a rulemaking board, uh, and, but we also hear uh, on occasion uh, appeals uh, as well, tax appeals. And uh, but this uh, particular um, board and agency is essentially um, really focused on how do we make the taxpayer experience one that is um, easy uh, to make tax compliance, you know, just something that uh, is not going to pose a hardship for any Californian. Uh, we have had a lot of programs that have been new uh, that have been added to uh, the Franchise Tax Board's set of responsibilities. Uh, most recently, the Golden State Stimulus Payments that the governor and the legislature have, has enacted for low-income working families. Uh, so to be able to identify you know, who uh, uh, that money should go to, to be sure that we have systems in place to, uh, to have that happen. My office does issue the checks, but in terms of identifying who receives them. That is the work of the Franchise Tax Board staff. So we're essentially overseeing uh, the operations, not the day-to-day -day operations, but certainly the uh, strategic direction about uh, tax administration and the whole income tax area, as well as hearing appeals. And part of why and, I like to say, we, 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 and part of why I like to say that we like to uh, always improve on the taxpayer experience is that um, we actually have uh, a pretty good rate of tax compliance. Um, so we, it's voluntary compliance. And uh, when you think about Californians um, and their interaction with the state of California, uh, there probably are two, maybe three uh, places where they directly interact with the state of California. Uh, that would be the DMV, uh, the Franchise Tax Board, and probably most recently, the Employment Development Department. So we definitely wanna make this the best experience that they can have. Social injustice, health disparities, climate change. Are you interested in solving pressing challenges like these currently facing our region and the world? Then consider joining the next cohort of future policy leaders like me by applying for the UCR Master of Public Policy program. Learn more at mpp.ucr.edu. You can also find the link in our show notes. 
Yeah, and it sounds like, um, you know, you've got your hands in a lot of different things there, a lot of moving parts. If I can jump to another question here, um, you know, we understand that you're involved in multiple issues and causes, you know, including climate change, economic development, and affordable housing, among others. Yeah. Um, how can Californians get involved uh, with other issues that affect us? Yeah, this is, um, Californians can always, always be involved with issues that affect us. Um, and I will say, um, you know, at the state level, because we are the fifth largest economy in the world, I think a lot of the uh, mindset uh, for those of us serving uh, in state service is uh, we think globally, but act locally. Um, and locally is the big state of California, but also acting locally means that for many Californians, I always say, pay attention to what your local governments are doing. Uh, they are the closest to um, uh, what you are experiencing in your daily lives and their decisions are going to probably matter the most in your daily lives. So uh, following the public uh, meetings of your elected city councils, your boards of supervisors, your water district, your school districts, um, really uh, taking um, the opportunity of the public comments, um, sections of their agendas to be sure that you are uh, providing input uh, on the various issues on the agenda, or maybe even items not on the agenda, they will take public comment. And then uh, more importantly, I will say that um, anything that um, is happening at the state level, you have uh, legislators that represent districts who are always uh, willing to hear from their constituents. And uh, a lot of them do uh, have uh, outreach events in their uh, communities. And so uh, trying to make that connection, uh, if you wanna express an opinion uh, to also reach out to your local elected legislators. Uh, for me, I get a lot of uh, constituent uh, mail. Uh, we have a very, very robust constituent uh, operation uh, where we do respond uh, on a whole host of issues affecting the state. Uh, I will say I'm very proud of my office because we are probably one of the few state offices where we have people actually answering the phones when the public calls. And so we um, tend to get a lot of calls for intended for other um, state agencies and departments, but we're happy to be a navigator in that regard. Uh, you know, I, I think for me, um, you know, I got involved, uh, as I said, in my early life as a child, helping my parents launder and dry cleaning business. And it was really that interface with government agencies that uh, really had me um, thinking a lot about, um, you know, just what's, what, what does that experience look like for an immigrant family, right? Trying to um, be successful in a small business. Um, if I were older at that time, I probably would have had more input about how they could have made it easier. Uh, for example, um, you know, maybe some in-language resources, but at the time, you know, we were still considered a minority in that part of San Francisco where I grew up. Um, so there are always opportunities to weigh in, but, uh, but using our local elected officials, our public uh, meetings as uh, really the tools to uh, provide input. Thank you for that. And it's really great to hear, especially from someone in a really important position to state that there are ways for Californians um, and really anyone to actually be involved and help, um, no matter how big or little it is and any issues that affect them or affect their communities in general. And it's just really great to hear that these um, avenues exist for them. Absolutely. Um, so I'd like to transition a little bit um, into another topic. So I understand that you co-founded the Asian Pacific Youth Leadership Project, which is um, basically involved in exposing high school students to public policy and service. So what was one of the core reasons you started this initiative? Uh, thank you for the question, Kevin. Um, it, the project now is um, I think just over 35 years old. So uh, it was founded a, a while ago when I was uh, working as staff in the California State Legislature. 
And uh, I got involved with um, co-founding the project with a number of my staff colleagues because we did not see um, elected members of the legislature uh, who were from the Asian Pacific Islander community. And we felt that uh, what really needed to happen was early exposure to the whole you know, political public service, uh, public policy arena uh, for our youth so that uh, we were kind of planting a seed, if you will. Uh, so the project is essentially uh, a three-day conference that brings 50 high school students from throughout California uh, to uh, participate um, in um, mock legislative sessions and uh, really uh, understanding, um, you know, kind of the uh, cultural identity as a benefit and as a barrier to service, to public service, uh, to really understanding that public service comes in all shapes, forms, and sizes. So for uh, uh, you know, my uh, youth in, in the API community, that uh, didn't matter if um, you were driven to pursue you know, a pre-med degree or if you were driven to you know, go to law school, if you were driven into engineering, that there's always room for public service. In fact, we welcome a lot of backgrounds and different expertise in public service. And, uh, and so this was really a great way to just plant that seed. And I'm happy to say that um, over the course of the 30 years, we've had some alumni from the project run for local office. Uh, we have uh, some that are serving in high-level administrative positions, and um, yeah, and I think it, and, and when you are uh, when you sit, just watch and witness uh, young people, this is something that I think is really um, uh, something that we need to do better, and that is uh, we need to incorporate the voices of young people more in our uh, public policy arena. And uh, one for them to actually understand how public policy is made. Uh, it is a process. Uh, and it's a process that I actually respect a lot, and particularly if we can have it be more inclusive. Um, and secondly, um, I do think that uh, when we do involve young people, they can see themselves actually being the decision makers at some point. And so uh, not have it be so mysterious about what it is to be a legislator, what it is to be you know, a state controller. Uh, so, I, uh, so that was really the gist of the project and the, and the impetus for the project. And uh, I'm happy to say that today we actually have a robust API legislative caucus. Uh, so we do have members. Uh, elected um, and uh, from both sides of the aisle, who uh, both Democrat and Republican, who are serving uh, our constituents in all parts of California. That's really great to hear. And as a brief follow-up, um, in a kind of more general sense, what more can we do, like both as a state and, and as a nation, and I guess as individuals as well, to ensure that our public servants are diverse and accurately represent their constituents, like you were mentioning? Is there anything else that we could do? Absolutely. Um, so here's, uh, and, and I think we have to be very intentional about it. So, um, you know, one of the things that um, really has struck me with this uh, COVID pandemic is obviously the disproportionate numbers of cases in our communities of color, particularly the Latinx community, um, and certainly the way that information uh, was being disseminated in our um, ethnic communities. And I just think, you know, government needs to do better. And I am part of doing better is knowing that uh, we have that kind of representation, you know, from those communities who are, like I said, in decision making roles and roles that actually uh, have responsibilities for disseminating information uh, and so on. Uh, you know, for me, it's more than just about, um, you know, having that representation. It is also more about understanding uh, what works in these communities. So, for example, um, you know, I've been. Uh, my, my first foray into government and, and particularly um, why I decided to stay uh, in public service 
Uh, I started out in public service uh, pretty quickly out of graduate school. I served on a public, uh, a county public health commission uh, right when the HIV AIDS crisis was breaking. And uh, I uh, was tasked by my colleagues on the commission to go to Sacramento and uh, bring home some additional public health dollars so that we can deal with this crisis. Uh, we need to provide outreach and education. There wasn't any, you know, even any signs of uh, promises for treatment yet in those early days. And so it was just really a, um, a, a, it, was a it was a crisis. Um, I went to Sacramento um, on, on a fellowship. Uh, and this is something that I do wanna um, put in a plug for. Uh, we do have the Capital Fellows Program uh, that is, um, uh, administered under the auspices of the Center for California Studies at California State University, Sacramento. Um, and uh, for those who are fellows, uh, you can earn master's degree credits uh, during your fellowship. It's a 10 month program. Uh, and both the California State Senate, the California State Assembly, as well as the executive branch of, uh, of uh, California um, look for fellows every year to serve in different capacities. Uh, I started out as a fellow. I did apply for a fellowship uh, at the urging of my colleagues uh, in uh, at the county and um, got into the fellowship program. And I served, uh, was uh, placed with the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services, where I learned the state budget process, where I worked on a number of issues that today I look back on and think, well, that was obvious. Um, and I'll talk about some of the first bills that I worked on in a moment. But um, what, what was um, telling about my time in Sacramento was that there were, I, I quickly observed and learned that there were not a lot of um, women or uh, people of color advising our legislators around fiscal policy. And I thought, this has to change. And so after my 10 month fellowship, I decided to stay and try to change that. And I'm glad to say today that there is much more diversity among the legislative staff and certainly among legislative staff leaders who are uh, key policy advisors. And, um, and I think that's a, that has a lot to do with you know, how we're able to hopefully be better at serving our diverse communities in California, and, um, but also understanding how these communities work. And so what I, I just wanna go back to this point, I think government has to be a little bit more nimble about uh, what does work. We know that, um, for example, what works in the API community, the Latinx community is, um, a lot of people get their information in those communities from very informal sources. Um, you're not going to get it through, you know, traditional maybe health clinic or health uh, health organization. <clears throat> and maybe it's the news. Maybe it's uh, you know through news on the radio. Um, but mostly it's going to be through trusted sources. So whether it's through a church, whether it's through uh, in the Latinx community, I know we see um, a lot of uh, uh, people who serve as informal sources of information, the uh, uh, promotores who are in these communities who are just trusted sources of information. And I think as a government, we have to recognize that, that we know that if we want to really touch these communities, if we want to be sure that they can access services, uh, we're going to have to go to where they're at. Uh, which means that uh, we uh, lift up, you know, these uh, promotores. We uh, lift up, uh, you know, communications through, you know, radio and other media that uh, people rely on. So I think this is really a big lesson that I've learned coming out of the COVID pandemic is uh, kind of what I've known in my gut, just being from the API community, but certainly substantiated uh, during the COVID crisis. The UC Riverside School of Public Policy is excited to announce the launch in fall 2022 of its new combined BA and Master of Public Policy program. 
as the only such program offered exclusively within a public policy school in the entire UC system, the UCR BAMPP will allow public policy students to complete both their public policy major and graduate studies in five years. Learn more at spp.ucr.edu slash BA-MPP for more information. You can also find the link in our show notes. Thank you for that, uh, Ms. Yee. I wanted to just ask one more question um, as we start to close out here. Um, you are the state controller for one of the world's largest economies. What goals do you have both in your current position and beyond? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been uh, I, I'm a first generation Californian and um, first generation American. Uh, California has been a state that's been very kind to me. Um, you know, I mean, by all accounts, I should not even be in this position. I grew up poor to immigrant parents, like six kids in our family. And I remember even, you know, helping my parents in their laundry and dry cleaning business, um, you know, negotiate with vendors. And if I didn't get a good price on like a gross of buttons or a dozen zippers, you know, for the business that we probably wouldn't be able to afford that carton of milk on the table, you know, that week. And so, you know, I'm very uh, mindful of that and how, um, you know, that's still an experience for many, you know, immigrant uh, families uh, in our state. You know, my goals really are this, and it's really simple. Um, you know, I think um, when you look at how diverse California is, it is not a surprise that we need to be sure that all of our policies are centered around uh, racial and economic justice and equity. And I think, uh, you know, the goals that I have uh, for the remainder of my term as controller is to look at post-pandemic you know, how do we help build that equity in disproportionately affected communities? Everything from climate impacts to economic impacts and uh, using tools that government has, but also how do we partner with others to be sure that we are helping communities build resilience? Uh, because the pandemic that we we're experiencing is not gonna be the last one that we're gonna experience. And when you look at public health as really kind of the foundation of all healthcare, uh, we're gonna have public health crises when it comes to climate change, whether it's gonna be from, you know, our uh, unsafe drinking water, um, you know, maybe inadequate food supply, um, chronic health conditions exacerbated. I mean, and all of that, I think, will continue to be issues that we're going to have to contend with. So really, how do we build, help communities build resilience? And I think the way to do that, one, is to be sure those voices are at the table for decision making. So I'm very much about going into those communities, identifying where the leadership is, being sure that their voices are being invited into our uh, public policy arena, as well as our um, democratic arena. Um, uh, and then uh, secondly, uh, to look at from the uh, a, a direction of fiscal resources perspective that uh, we are not leaving these communities behind. Um, and I'm very happy with the fact that uh, you know, during the pandemic, we actually are doing well fiscally. And so there have been a lot of investments made uh, in these uh, various communities. Um, I also just want to lift up our indigenous communities as well, because uh, they have always borne the brunt disproportionately of all these impacts. And so to now be able to include them as you know, hopefully some of the beneficiaries of what we're going to do to combat climate change, to look at protecting our environment, to look at uh, how we're going to uh, you know, overcome this, uh, this COVID pandemic and, and prepare ourselves for, for more. Uh, so I have a concept that I like to call uh, future-proofing. Uh, it's usually kind of a, uh, a, an engineering term that is about, you know, how do we have our structures all 
um, strengthened for future shocks, uh, expected and unexpected. And I feel that way about future-proofing our communities and people. Um, and I think we have a lot of work to do in that arena. It's what I'm committed to do for the remainder of my term as controller. Um, and also, you know, beyond that, um, at this point, um, I uh, am looking at just, uh, you know, how do we uh, be sure that all these communities are touched? And so that's my commitment um, in terms of, uh, you know, just what makes a great democracy, but also what will continue to build strength in our, in our California. As a daughter of immigrants myself, thank you, controller, for sharing your story. In addition to that, I'm sure our listeners um, will get a lot out of what you've shared today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I was actually going to say the same thing as Joanna, um, as a first generation college student and um, as, a, as the son of immigrants, it is really great to hear that this is something that is being prioritized and being um, talked about um, and actually being mentioned so that it can, like you said, potentially be solved in the future through policy. And, and I think um, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think it, the solution is kind of um, within the problem itself where, you know, if we actually get more diversity in our um, in public office, in the people who actually represent us, then they can do a better job of actually helping us um, with, on, a, on a multitude of issues, um, policy-related issues. So right. for our last question, um, I just want to ask very broadly, you know, you're an expert in public service. You've been doing this for a really long time. So is there any like specific advice you would give to students that are potentially listening that are interested in running for public office in the future? Yes, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but do it in an informed way. Um, do it in a way where you are seeking out mentors. There are lots who are uh, myself included colleagues uh, in elected office who would be more than willing to uh, serve as mentors. Work on a campaign. I mean, first and foremost, get a sense of what it's about. Um, you can start with just working on a local campaign. Um, you can start, you know, maybe even working on a state level campaign or congressional campaign. But just get that um, first. I look at uh, what the demands are of a campaign and of a candidate. And then uh, I would say really do some work uh, introspectively, you know, with yourself. Um, and this was really important because as I said, uh, yeah, and I'll just uh, leave with this last bit and it will be a homework assignment. So um, I apologize. I know you get enough homework. <laughs> so uh, when I first decided to run for um, uh, office, which, as I said, was not something I dreamed of doing. Uh, I had a kitchen cabinet of just colleagues and friends with whom I worked for you know decades with, and just had their trust, and and they and uh, the trust was shared, and I and, and part of that trust is for them to be able to say things to me that uh, I necessarily didn't want to hear, and it wouldn't offend me. I actually would you know really take it with um, great appreciation. And one of the first homework assignments um, that I received was uh, write a two-page bio about yourself. And, and this came out of the fact that, you know, I always felt like I had to be at the top of my game policy wise. I like, you know, really being analytical, like I like problem solving. And uh, basically it was, uh, you know, chill out. You don't have you don't have to be like the smartest person in the room all the time, but you need to make a connection with people. And so I um, and a two page bio about yourself that is not your resume. Okay, so we're all so tightly identified with our, you know, our work and our school. And, um, but really what came out, and this took me about almost three months to write. And it was essentially a bio that reflected about my values, like how my values were shaped. Obviously, you know, from my immigrant parents who sacrificed so much to put six kids through college, um, had a lot to do with uh, how, um, 
I really have a great um, appreciation and still I'm a big advocate for public education because that was a complete game changer for me. I didn't speak English until I entered kindergarten and uh, to look and see where I am today because of the great teachers who really believed in me. Uh, I'm a great advocate for healthcare, for universal healthcare, because uh, my parents didn't have any. My father died at the young age of 63 years old because he didn't have healthcare uh, and ran a family business. And uh, so uh, really a big advocate for that. And then I'm a huge, huge um, believer about everything we do is centered around building community. Uh, my parents would not have been successful uh, with their business um, without the support that they had from their community. And uh, I always used to say, uh, we didn't have to be accountable to our parents for good grades. We had to be accountable to the hundreds of customers that my parents had for good grades. And so, uh, but it's just that community that everybody just felt like they were in it for everyone else too. So if anyone wasn't doing well in the community, it was a stain on the whole community. I think that value has actually disappeared and I hope that it does return. And I think we each have something to, to do around that. Um, so I would say do it, but do it in an informed way, but the most informed way is to know yourself best first. And uh, just, you know, what motivates you? What drives you? What are your values? Where did they come from? And uh, because uh, what now I'm able to do from that homework assignment is to, um, almost speak like that's my core and foundation, right? And, uh, and knowing also that when you're in public life that not everyone's gonna agree with you. In fact, people can be actually very vicious and, and attack you, but you know that you've got that core. And uh, as, as long as you can project that and people know your sincerity and authenticity around that, um, people really appreciate that, particularly now in politics. So do it, but uh, really get to know yourself well first. Thank you, Controller. I think that's a great note to end on. And like I said earlier, it really was an honor to have you here with us today. It was a pleasure to meet both of you and I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. Our theme music was produced by C. Codain. I'm Kevin Karami. Till next time.